if you'd like to tweet questions at us or comments to us, uh, please use the, the hashtag Cato Immigration if you'd like us to receive them. Uh, we are here to discuss private philanthropy and immigration with Donald Graham. Uh, Don asked me to, to dispense with the lengthy introduction uh, that he deserves, but I will mention just a couple of things. Uh, he is the current chairman uh, of the board of Graham Holdings Company. Company. He was previously the longtime publisher of the Washington Post. Uh, we are here today, however, because he is the co-founder of the Dream.us, a college scholarship program for immigrant youth. Sadana Singh and Maricela Tobar are also here with us. They are scholarship recipients from the Dream.us. Uh, both graduated from Trinity Washington University uh, last month, so congratulations Thank to you, you both. Uh, just to give a, a brief backdrop for our conversation, uh, we're really here for two reasons. Uh, in 2012, uh, President Obama created the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, to give deportation deferrals and work permits to uh, young undocumented immigrants known as DREAMers who were brought to the United States as children. Um, the second reason we are here is that in 2017, uh, President Trump promised to wind down the program, and while he has so far been prevented from doing so by the courts, uh, many legal analysts believe that is a temporary uh, phenomenon and DACA could end by the end of the year. Um, in between these two events, uh, nearly 700,000 immigrants turn their information over to the government uh, in order to sign up for DACA, including our two uh, distinguished guests who are with us today. Um, President Trump, when he announced the end of DACA or the wind down of DACA, called on Congress to pass legislation uh, to resolve this issue. Uh, so far, it has failed to pass a bill out of either House of Congress um, this week, however, uh, the House of Representatives uh, announced that it will hold two votes on pieces of legislation related to this issue next week. Uh, we don't know the full um, details on one of those pieces of legislation, uh, but uh, while hope is not gone, uh, it is certainly going to be a difficult road ahead to get a bill to the president's desk that he will sign. Uh, when I approached Don about doing this event, uh, I did so because I really felt that the dream.us shows what private citizens can do when the government fails to act, uh, that they can step up and really make a, a major difference um, in people's lives. Uh, at the same time, I thought his effort and Sedona and Maricela's stories uh, really show that dreamers are not here asking for a handout or welfare or whatever. They are asking for the opportunity to contribute to the country that they've called home for over 10, uh, over 10 years, uh, at least 10 years, um, many times much longer. Um, this is why at the Cato Institute, we've uh, invested so much into this issue. 
Um, just to cite a few of the, the studies that we've done on the topic, uh, our study on the economic effects of removing DACA recipients from the labor force found that it would cost the economy $351 billion over 10 years, uh, and that the estimated cost to the government would be $93 billion loss in tax revenue. Uh, separately, we estimated that the cost of firing all of the DACA recipients uh, would cost businesses $6.3 billion in turnover costs uh, in just a couple of years. Uh, in addition, we found that dreamers are actually less likely uh, to commit serious crimes and end up behind bars than uh, similarly situated US-born Americans. So with all that said, uh, let me start with you, Don. Uh, why did you create the dream.us? And were you already engaged on immigration issues before uh, your, you no, created I wasn't engaged on immigration issues at all. Uh, first of all, I want to say to everybody who's here, thank you, and to everybody who's watching on live stream or whatever. And David, I really want to thank you and your Cato colleagues for inviting us. Uh, we. Uh, came in part because uh, we suspect there are some of you in the audience who don't agree with what we're doing and what we'll be saying, and we particularly want to talk to you, to give you later the opportunity to ask questions of all three of us as much as you want to, and let's talk, because uh, this is a very interesting subject. But I should position myself, and Maricela and Sadana will be much more eloquent and letting you understand what uh, DACA and its consequences are about. So I am not an immigration expert by any means. Disgracefully for someone from Washington, D.C., I'm not even a lawyer. <laughs> I, I don't have some bill I want to pass to resolve the immigration. If you asked me to make an immigration law for the entire United States, I would give you the pen back. Uh, I'm not wise enough to do that. But I got interested in this because I met some dreamers. And Cato stands for liberty. Cato stands for the freedom of the individual to do what they want. And uh, David and I were talking on your wall of fame downstairs. Uh, the one person I actually knew was Milton Friedman, who believed in letting people do what they wanted with their lives. The dreamers are uh, a group that, whose lives have been put on hold while we, the, the citizens, the Congress, debate and debate and debate the larger questions of immigration. And the point I would like to make to you is whatever else you believe about immigration, the treatment of these young people two of two out of 700,000 are sitting with you, and I'm not going to say they're typical, but they are representative. Uh, uh, this isn't right. It is wrong for them, but it's also wrong for our country. And David was very eloquent in spelling out some of the reasons why. So more than half the dreamers I've met uh, grew up not understanding that they were the children of undocumented immigrants, believing that they, like their classmates, were Americans, were American citizens. How was it that they, were, that they believed that? Well, 
just put yourself in the position of an undocumented family. You have this secret that above all you don't want anybody to learn. Would you tell that secret to an eight-year-old? I don't think so because I've been the parent of four eight-year-olds who are now quite a bit older than eight. <laughs> and uh, uh, if you tell it to an eight-year-old, the eight-year-old is absolutely certain to tell somebody, and you don't know who, so you keep it a secret. And many dreamers learn that they are not citizens when it is time to apply for college, and they learn uh, what uh, Gabby Pacheco, the program director of the Dream.us, is here today. And Gabby graduated from high school before DACA, and her college counselor and in her high school, who'd met hundreds of dreamers, said to her, Gabby, you can't go to college, period. End of story. Forget it. There's lots of things you can do if you don't go to college. And just be satisfied with that. Figure it out, but you can't go. Uh, Gabby's one of these people who doesn't take no for an answer, so that's another interesting story. But we, uh, so that's what the dreamers get told. And the dreamer may say, but I'm the valedictorian. And the counselor might say, well, take a shot, try to get somebody to give you a full ride. But the dreamer alone of all the students in the class, if it's a low-income school, can't get a Pell Grant and can't borrow a cent. Now, I'm not some naive person who thinks immigrants should go to school and nobody else should. I know there's a crisis of college cost and college attendance in the United States, I know. Uh, one reason I know is I also co-founded 20 years ago a scholarship program for all the students in the Washington, D.C. public and charter schools. And that's how I started to meet Dreamers. Because when this started, uh, the rates of college attendance and college graduation exploded. But here was this one persistent population, the Dreamer population, of which the attendance rate was zero. And so we started this program. We got a lot of students. And please meet two of them, because these are uh, splendid people. We didn't pick them because you know, they're the top students in the whole program, but they're impressive people. Do you want to just turn to Maricela and Sedana and let them sure. introduce themselves? Sure. Uh, Sedana, could you tell us a little bit about your story and, and how you came to be here? Absolutely. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Sedana Singh. I was born in Guyana. And at 13, at the age of 13, my parents decided to immigrate, um, and we moved to the state of Georgia. I had a younger brother at the time, so we both came. and and. For me, I totally embraced America. I loved it. I was really into school, and I excelled in academics, and I threw myself into learning, and I, I wanted to blend in just like everyone else. And as Don said, um, I knew of my status the entire time. I, I, it was not a secret to me. However, I kept it a secret from others, so I was completely in the shadows. Uh, as, as long as my friends in high school knew, I was a citizen, and I kept that lie, that pretext going. So although I was a great student in high school and I was near the top of my class, senior year was really difficult because when all of my friends were saying where they were applying to and where they got into and discussing college plans, I would just lie and pretend that I was doing the same thing. And I just had to fake it with my group because I couldn't, quote unquote, come out to anyone to let them know my status. And I was so afraid and ashamed of it even that I couldn't even go to a teacher or counselor to say my status, to ask for help. So graduating from high school, I graduated near the top of my class. 
it was a very disappointing time for me because I just knew that I couldn't go to college. In Georgia, I was barred from the top five colleges of the state. I was not eligible for any grants or the Hope Scholarship. Pause, pause right there for a minute. <laughs> Sedona is barred by law from the University of Georgia. There are many states where the dreamer is asked to pay out-of-state tuition rather than in-state tuition. There are many states where dreamers are asked to pay international tuition rather than in-state tuition. In Georgia and South Carolina, in Sedona's case, the dreamers, in South Carolina's case, undocumented students are banned from the state universities even if they pay. Can't go. So yeah, really there was no hope for me and I would say that no one in my family had ever gone to college before or anything and I couldn't tell anyone about my situation. So basically I was never able to try to try to apply anywhere or anything. So I was sort of resigned to my fate. But I knew that anything I wanted to achieve in America was going to come from higher education. So I knew that someday I really wanted to go to college. But I graduated high school in 2005. And at the time, I got a job and was fortunate enough to get that job and worked a regular nine to five to help support my family, my younger brother. All the while, I was thinking, oh, it's just going to be for a year and something was going to work out for me. And, you know, and then, oh, it's just going to be for another year and something was going to work out. But it ended up being nine years that I was working at that job. And that became the most miserable period of my life because I grew up in Georgia, rural Georgia, um, where there was no public transportation and I didn't have a license and was not able to drive. Um, my dad actually drove me to this job and then brought me home every single day. And there was nothing else really that I could do. All of my friends had moved on to college. They traveled. They got higher degrees at this time. And I was just sort of stuck in the same place. So it was a really miserable time for me. I felt repressed. I felt Throughout my 20s, I felt I had potential to do things, but I just didn't know how. Um, nothing was happening with legislation or the government. So it was just year after year of hoping that something was going to work out. And then DACA. And then DACA in 2012, which when I heard that announcement, I immediately said, this is it. This is my salvation. So I applied right away. Um, my brother was a little skeptical. He said, oh, can we, can we trust this? Is this for real? I said, I'm, I'm doing it. It's got to be something. And at the time, I was 26. So I was really ready for something. I got DACA. It was the first time I was able to get a driver's license and ID. I learned how to drive. But I still was not able to afford college. Um, I was working and helping my parents. So then two years after that, the Dream.us came about. And a coworker of mine actually heard about the Dream.us. They heard about it on the radio, where Gabby Pacheco was actually talking about it. And he came to me and he said, wow, this sounds like she's describing you. This sounds like if it's you. And I, again, I jumped on it and I said, this is my salvation. And then I was 28 and I applied to the scholarship, applied to Trinity, got in, moved. I had to relocate from Georgia to come to Trinity because it was a private school, which means there was no in-state, out-of-state out of tuition requirements. But by that time, I was just ready to go wherever they sent me so that I could go to college. And so I, I left and came to Trinity, and then the past four years have been the most amazing years of my life because everything changed 180 degrees. I was able to have independence and mobility and just sort of live a life that I was denied 10 years before. So in class, I was with you know, people that were younger than me, but I, again, I almost blended in. No one would believe how old I was. When I told them, they, they, they thought I was lying. 
And they were like, you're 20, right? And I'm like, no, add about 10 to that. <laughs> so they, I just, again, I blended in. But at this time, Trinity gave me the confidence and the dream.us gave me the confidence to actually come out and say, hey, I'm a dreamer. And I met other dreamers who were just like me. So it wasn't just my brother that I knew. I met a whole community. So then my confidence just sort of went up from there. And I just felt much better as a dreamer to come out and tell my story. And, and then to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that I was given. And what about you, Marcel? What? Well, I'm a little bit different um, than Sadana's experience. I was born in El Salvador. Um, my parents decided um, to move to this country when I was five and my brother was 11. So I came at the right time to learn English. Uh, um, so that was pretty easy to transition in school, I guess. Um, and school actually became an awesome place. Um, I absolutely love school. Um, I remember my first you know, lessons in school was that America was free and you can do what you want. Um, and I have many stories when that was my reasoning to my brother who was you know, yelling at me because I was yelling in the street and he wanted to shut me up. And I was like, in America, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> um, so, um, but then I grew up a little bit more and um, I started discovering that I was an undocumented immigrant or I came from an undocumented family um, through the consequences of being it, you know. Um, the first was, uh, I want to say maybe second and third grade when we all went back to school after summer break. Everyone was saying they went to da da da, -da for vacation, they went back home to f visit family. And I asked my parents, my mom, um, why aren't we traveling? We've had done so before. Um, we had had a visa, so I know what a plane looks like. I know what an airport, airport looks like, and I've done it before. And so I had this question, why aren't we traveling? And the answer was, we can't anymore. Um, I was like, I don't know. Maybe there's no paperwork. I remember that, too. There was a lot of paperwork. We went to a lot of offices and meetings when we wanted to get a visa. Um, and so after that, I, my father um, went into a period of time where he had to be a day laborer um, because no one was hiring undocumented people. So I would hear his uh, experiences of the day where the contractor didn't pay him. Um, that left him very far away from a metro station. So he would come 10, 11 at night, and that he didn't know what to do. You know, he didn't, um, he couldn't, you know, you know, advocate for himself. And I would hear these things, and I was still very young. And then during that time, there was also um, immigration raids, ICE raids in workplaces around my community. I come from Maryland um, in Montgomery County. Um, and so I would hear at night, you know, there was a raid in this place, a raid over here. And my parents sat my brother and, and I down. Um, you know, the danger was my father to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so the question was, if your father gets detained by this police, because that's what I thought it was, just some type of police, um, he would get sent back to El Salvador. My mom would go, would we want to go? Do we go with them or do we stay with relatives? And that's when it kind of hit. This is not usual. None of my friends are having these conversations at home. 
but I was. And so I started learning little by little about um, immigration reforms and the DREAM Act that was you know, coming and going as I was growing up. People were fighting for this. People were angry about it. I would hear very angry comments on the news a lot. And I started realizing that they were mad at me. Um, they were mad at me being here. And so, but again, school was awesome for me. It was the best place in the world because, like I told you in the beginning, I was free to do what I wanted. And school was that. I was able to learn and love learning. Um, and I felt like I was like everyone else, like everyone, um, all of my friends. Um, I was the average student. Yes, I would ex excel here, not excel there. Chemistry, oof. Um, but, you know, but I was learning and I was great at it. And I loved children. So as I grew up in high school, I decided, no, that something, my career, I wanted to be, do something with children, didn't know what. Um, my brother had, since he's older, he went through the same experience as I did, but with much, many more barriers than I did. Um, when he graduated, graduated high school, he, uh, there was no uh, in-state tuition in Maryland. There was no, definitely no DACA. So he took a turn um, where he entered into depression, and he ended up not going to college for a very long time. And so I thought that was my... Okay, that's your path now. That's what happens here. Um, thankfully, um, my junior year in high school, uh, DACA was announced. I was overjoyed um, for this because I was going to, I didn't know what it was, but I was like, I'm going to sign up. I don't know what exactly it is, but we're going to figure it out. Um, so I signed up. I turned in every document they asked for and more. I turned in all the certificates since kindergarten. Till that time, and, um, paid, and paid four hundred ninety-five dollars by the way, and, and lawyer fees because at the time I didn't know what it was, um, so we were scared. We wanted to the best lawyer to look this through and make sure that uh, everything was correct. And then after that, um, I was able to start working in high school, which was a need in my home. I needed to work, um, and then my senior year, um, I happened to stumble upon. Uh, the dream.us. So my counselors were much different. They encouraged me to look for scholarships, $50, $500, $100, doesn't matter. Anything works, right? Apply to anything that you can. And so I was applying everywhere. I would live in the post office, um, sending applications out. And on the news one day, I, I heard Gabi on Univision um, announcing this, uh, this scholarship. And I didn't believe it. I'm like, what? Like, this is crazy. Um, so I Google, obviously, uh, quickly. I applied that moment, and I got it. And it was an amazing feeling um, to walk across the stage at, in high school knowing that I was going to go to college. And I didn't have to worry about money, you know? Because if it weren't for the scholarship, I would spend a semester working, then go a semester, work another semester, where, you know, it was going to be a long process. And without DACA, I wouldn't have been able to study education. I graduated with an elementary education uh, degree. I'm a teacher, officially, third grade teacher. 
And without DACA, I can't do that, you know, by the simple reason of not being able to get background checks. And where are you going to be a third grade teacher? In Maryland, Montgomery County. I'm teaching third grade. Um, and so it's, you know, many things happen. Uh, they they uh, uh, are consequences of the dream.us and, and DACA. So. Yeah. So I might, I might add three things, sure. David, to the presentation the three of us have made, because I think you would like to know. Uh, first, uh, Marcella mentioned that she came to the United States when she was five. Uh, a professor at Harvard named Roberto Gonzalez is, what, I think, the best academic scholar of uh, DACA recipients. And he says he has surveyed the population and says that the average DACA recipient came to the United States at the age of six. So Maricela is about typical. Second, to get DACA, you have to allow, you have to uh, give the Department of Homeland Security a list of all the addresses where you and your family have lived. HHS checks with, uh, DHS checks with uh, police departments and confirms that you have not been convicted of a felony or a serious misdemeanor. I'm looking at Gabby as I say this. I believe a serious misdemeanor is the maximum sentence is 30 days or more. Mm -hmm. One DUI and you're disqualified for DACA. One domestic violence conviction, you're disqualified for DACA. Uh, and that DACA is a two-year status, renewable every two years. And when it renews, the department and the local police check again to see that you have not been convicted of a felony or a serious misdemeanor. So this is a population of people who, on average, came here at the age of six and have not been convicted of a crime. And, yeah. and uh, oh, and one last thing. Uh, we have, you know, we've, David has described me as a philanthropist, and we're talking about the scholarship program. The scholarships these two uh, received last year, we increased it by a thousand bucks, was a mighty $6,500 a year. So it was a little less than a maximum Pell Grant. Every student in their classes, every citizen who was a student, if they were low income as these students are, was eligible for a Pell Grant in Maryland and DC for local scholarships as well. The students going to Trinity get $2,500 from DC Tag, and Georgia has abundant scholarships. And of course, those, every other student in the class could borrow all the money they wanted. So with this scholarship, they got way less money than anybody else in their class. And, and what, how many scholarships have you uh, now awarded? How, well, how we're, we're, because our costs are so low, because uh, we send, uh, we, don't, uh, we don't just give you a scholarship for any college you want to go to. Uh, uh, we keep talking about Gabby Pacheco, who's here. Gabby's a graduate of Miami-Dade University in Florida. Miami-Dade is, you can win a bet in any bar in town on this tonight in a trivia contest. It is the largest college in the United States, not online, but physically present, 165,000 students. Why? Cost $4,000 a year in-state. Uh, it is a former community college uh, empowered by the Florida legislature, as all their community colleges were, to grant four-year degrees in vocational subjects. 
So you can't study philosophy, but you can study accounting or nursing or teaching. And once I learned that there was a $4,000 a year college in Florida, and a good one, I started looking around for other very low-cost colleges. So our largest partner now is the City University of New York, which costs $6,900 a year. So we looked for places where our, our very lowly amount in scholarships, now $8,000 a year, would see you through. It would at least pay the tuition and a bit of the fees, and then the dreamer has to get other scholarships or earn a little money to pay for books and food. The dreamers typically, these are commuter colleges, and the dreamers typically uh, live at home and eat at home. So did you, when you started this, you had a couple of obstacles, right? So you had to convince some uh, states or colleges to take students, and, and you had to raise the money. And, and did you think that either one of these were going to be difficult when you... Well, it's, it's ridiculous. We started, three of us, uh, a colleague from Texas, Henry Munoz, who's a very active Democrat, and a colleague from Florida, Carlos Gutierrez, who's former uh, Secretary of Commerce under President George W. Bush. So we had a Democrat, a Republican, and an Independent. And we, were, we sat around and said, let's try to raise $2 million for scholarships for dreamers. And we quickly figured out that wouldn't go very far. So I became the fundraiser, and early on we had blindingly good luck in that we got a large grant from the Gates Foundation. So I have a feeling there's other people here who work in and around nonprofits. The Gates Foundation demands so much in the way of data, information, evidence, reports, and if you get a grant from them, it's like the good housekeeping seal of approval because people say, oh my God, you know, so, because it's so much work involved in getting a grant. So then we did. We, we were also supported by uh, 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 one member of the New York financial community, Bill Ackman, an activist investor who supports our New York scholars, uh, by uh, uh, eventually Jeff Bezos, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, and Priscilla Chan before they started their philanthropy, but personally, Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay, but our, our, the largest number of our donors by far give us 25 bucks or 50 bucks or whatever on the website. But we also had some extremely generous people up front, including, I want to say, members of my family to whom I'm deeply indebted. So, Sedana, what, what would you say to those who want DACA to end? Um, you know, what, 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 do you, what can you say about why you're here and why you want to continue to be able to work and, and live legally in this country? Well, I would say before DACA, I was in America physically, but I wasn't able to take part. I wasn't able to participate. So everything that I would see on TV, that I would see in movies, which is what I turned to to sort of experience life, was out of reach for me. And of course, I asked myself a lot of questions, like, why is this? I'm physically here. Um, I'm able. I want to learn. I love learning. But I'm just not, I can't do those things like my friends are doing. So it's sort of built in me that, well, I questioned my parents why they came. I would get angry. I would get resentful. I, I wondered if this was what my life was supposed to be. So by the time I got DACA, I was like, I was finally able to participate in this American society that I was just watching this whole time. So instead of observing, I could now actually do the things I could travel to a different state because I had an ID now. I could legally drive a car. I could be legally employed. And I can do these things without wondering if I'm going to get deported. 
And moreover, it helped my family a lot because then my brother could get a job, he could work and help my parents, he could help drive so my dad wouldn't have to do all the driving. So DACA opened the doors for my entire family, not just for me. And all of the benefits that I and my brother received from DACA was just not for us in isolation, it was for my entire family. And after that, I actually felt like that's when I started living. And this was at age of 26. And so I felt like without this, I didn't have much of a life. And then all of a sudden, this piece of paper gave me the keys to all of these doors. I want to pull back for people who don't live with this issue every day as the three of us do. DACA for these two means one thing, which is a chance to work. It offers its recipients a two years in which they cannot be deported unless they commit a crime, and uh, in which uh, they are given a temporary social security number and a temporary work permit as a foreign student could get. Temporary, because it expires when your DACA expires. David correctly said that President Trump terminated DACA, but he did not terminate it without, he uh, at that time said, I would like these students to not be the uh, beneficiaries of an executive order. I want Congress to pass a law mm. permitting them to stay. And so if, uh, I, know, I happen to know that Sadana just renewed her DACA and will be, is, is, has it for two more years. So everybody's expires on a different date. Let's assume the same is true of Maricela. When her DACA expires in two years, if DACA were no longer in effect, the Montgomery County Public Schools would have to fire her in the middle of the school year or whatever. There are hundreds of teachers with DACA. There are nurses all around the country with DACA. There are many professionals. Tim Cook says Apple has 250 employees with DACA. So this would have some effect. It would have some effect on a lot of kids in a lot of classrooms. But it would have, as, as David said at the start, it would have some effect on the American economy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's really a mandate on employers to, to not hire you rather than you, you having that desire to, to work. What, what, do you, what are your hopes for the future, Maricela? What, what do you want to see? Uh, see happen um, going forward? Well, I would like less conversations about struggles and um, less cost for every two years um, to renovate uh, DACA. I want something permanent, obviously. I don't want to worry about, like you know, Don was saying, in two years, um, going back, to submitting an uh, application, paying a fee, waiting for results, and and waiting honestly for uh, Congress to pass something or, or miracle basically um, to happen um, and almost putting, you know, not being able to plan for my life, you know? Right now, I, as a, a recent grad and now a teacher, you know, I want to go into grad school and things like that, but I have to plan things out because I don't know what's gonna happen in two years. I don't know where the funds are gonna come. I don't. I know nothing, um, and so definitely want something permanent so my life can settle a little, you know, to not go into the cycle every two years. And what do you um, want to do after being, a, you know, you're going to start as a teacher, and, and do you want to be a teacher for all your life? Or? Um, I want to, I definitely want the foundation of a classroom, a regular classroom. 
Um, but I do want to go into special education. As a bilingual um, teacher, I know there is a demand for that and um, into autism programs, uh, possibly even research, um, I want to go into that. So the opportunities are endless, but again, if every two years I have to wait and think and, and kind of recharge, um, it's difficult to really set your own bars. And I want this nation um, to see the fruits that not only Sadan and I bring, um, but our peers and the ones that are not eligible for DACA right now, um, the, our older dreamers um, that have been working and, and struggling much longer than we have. I mean, I'm a result, I'm here because of other dreamers like Gabi Pacheco that were fighting for this when I was young, like really, really young, and I didn't understand what this whole situation was. I saw them. And I saw how exhausted and tired and upset they were. And now I'm thinking I'm the next generation and it's the same situation. I don't want the next generation of dreamers to follow this. Yeah, yeah. So Don, will, will you continue uh, the dream.us uh, even if DACA goes away? Uh, yes, are you, are you committed to this? we are free to do that because uh, colleges were educating undocumented students way before DACA. There is nothing wrong with a college offering education to somebody who is an undocumented immigrant. And we would continue to pay what we could. It would become more expensive for the students mm -hmm. because they could no longer work at Starbucks. They could no longer work at the campus bookstore. So we might have to support them a little more, but we would do our, we would do our best to do it because we, we are pretty sure that in the long run, this country will welcome these people for all the reasons we've been discussing. One last thing, um, since this is Cato, we should mention this. Is there a bill for uh, codifying DACA, voting it into law? No, they are not seeking any benefits. It, if, they, uh, if the dreamers were given a path to citizenship, I think the quickest such path anyone contemplates is maybe eight years, Gabby. Uh, so uh, ironically, that means they'd miss out on federal funds to pay for their college. But so I think we should be here to do that so that when they become citizens, they can be fully contributing and help this country as they would all like to do. And uh, can members of the audience or, or any, anyone contribute to uh, the dream.us? Uh, we would Do you accept uh, uh, yeah. donations from anybody? Uh, if you go to our website at thedream.us, we have a convenient form making it very easy for generous people to contribute to the education of other such students. And there's a lot of such students. So www.thedream.us. And, and so, Maricela, do, do you feel like you were an American, are an American? I mean, what is America to you at this point? Uh, Should be yeah. a difficult question for you yeah. to answer, but. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I've always felt like an American. I mean, uh, again, America's free. That's the first thing I learned. Um, 
And so, no, I definitely believe that America is this, is this place where if not only if you work hard or whatever, you can achieve success, but it's a place where uh, uh, it's more than that. You know, it's about all, all these people, all of us, so different, um, that just want opportunities, that can get opportunities, that should be able to get opportunities. Um, and yeah, I mean, football on Sundays, go Eagles. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, and go Caps. There we go. <laughs> um, so it's, you know, just I'm honestly being Americans, being a regular person, I am a regular person um, and that just uh, wants to do different things and wants to um, not only, you know, become successful or anything like that, anything like that, it's just. Um, to grow as a person, to educate myself, to learn, always learning, keep learning. Um, so. Excellent. And so, Donna, if the DREAM Act passes or, or legislation passes to uh, provide that permanent status, uh, what are your plans? What do you, what do you want to achieve uh, with that? Well, I would say I would absolutely jump on it. Um, I sort of take advantage of every opportunity to advance and progress. And long term, I actually would like to go into journalism. Um, throughout the time that I was in Georgia, I watched a lot of movies, read a lot, and saw a lot of what was going on in the world, especially for other disadvantaged populations, especially for women around the world and girls who have no access to education. And being a woman of color myself who sort of had to fight against my own culture for the fact that I still wanted to go to college at 28, I think at that time my parents would have thought I would just get married and leave the house at, at, in, it, by that way. But I was still fighting against, you know, I was fighting against getting married at a young age. I was fighting against those things to say that I still want to go to college. I still want this, this opportunity. And so then I just sort of tuned me into how a lot of women around the world and girls around the world are struggling with this and, and do not get a scholarship like I received. So my goal long term is to be able to travel to some of those places and to be able to write those stories and and sort of do that kind of storytelling to then be able to get those opportunities available to them. Thank you so much. Thank you to all three of you uh, for sharing your stories. Um, and uh, our audience, if you have questions, uh, please form it uh, with a question mark at the end. Uh, <laughs> that's the most important thing about a question. If you're online, please use the hashtag uh, Cato Immigration to submit uh, your questions. If you're in the audience, uh, please wait for the microphone to arrive. Uh, we have uh, uh, two fine gentlemen here to assist us. Uh, I see a question in the front row uh, right there. Thank you. Now we're uh, Thank you, David. Uh, my name is Todd Wiggins. Um, first of all, before I ask my question, I wanted to, if I may, compliment Mr. Graham in your tenure at the Post. I think you've done a fantastic job. And my experience to meet you was when you introduced me to Dr. Henry Lewis Gates uh, about five years ago, prior to the sale of the uh, Post. Yes, that's, that's where we met. And you were very gracious and a great host. And so thank you for that. 
Um, first of all, I want to say it's obvious that uh, Sedona and Maricela are fine representatives of any culture in any country. And certainly anyone across the aisle would want to invite them to our country to be productive and to make this a, a better environment for everyone. However, Mr. Graham, you've had to fire people <laughs> in, your, in your tenure. And so there's bitter that comes with the sweet. The problem is, is that not everyone has the same intentions and the same capabilities of productivity that these two examples have. So the simple question is, are our laws adequate to protect us from those who would not have the same productive interests and potential outcome that these two folks have? Well, Todd, I think that's a good question. And uh, uh, I wouldn't put too much stock in this. I am, I am a former United States Army soldier. Wasn't my idea, but I, uh, <laughs> I, served, I served two years, including one in Vietnam. And after that, I, I actually, for a year and a half, was a police officer in Washington, D.C. I had my own scout car in Northeast Washington in 1969 and 70. But looking hastily around the room, I don't believe I arrested anyone now in the audience. <laughs> so I am an absolute believer in law enforcement, and you're alluding to the question of terrorism. Do our laws protect us adequately from terrorist threats, from immigrants who want to do harm in this country? Honest answer, I don't know. Uh, if I wanted to know the answer to that question, I would talk above all of the people running the CIA and the FBI, and I hope to heck they're collaborating better than they did before September 11th and learn as much as I could about the terrorist threat. And I would want to, uh, our country ought to be protected fully from anybody who comes here intending to commit acts of terror, intending to commit a crime. Again, before anyone gets DACA, they have to prove to the satisfaction of the Homeland Security Department that they have never been convicted of a crime. And uh, then every two years when their doc is renewed, they have to prove it again. So I don't think there's any problem with the particular group that I'm working with. And of course, if they do commit a crime, they lose DACA. And they presumably, uh, the government is free to deport them. So there is a category, you know, uh, the, this is a group of people, at least the 3,000 whom the Dream.us is currently having enrolled in college, I can speak to the incredible motivation of these young people as students. They want two things. They want to study, and then they want to go to work. Uh, they not only are in college, they're working hard. I was at Trinity when these two graduated. 21 students enrolled in their class, 21 Dreamer students. Uh, one of those students transferred to another partner college, George Mason, when Virginia opened up in-state tuition to Dreamers because that was closer to her home. One uh, says she has stopped out, may have dropped out. So of the 20, not counting the George Mason student, 19 graduated in four years. Average GPA, 3.5. Seven of the 19 Phi Beta Kappas. So this is not a, you know, this is, I agree with both halves of your question. The group that we're serving is, is the opposite of a threat to the United States. They're going to be a long-run support to the United States. And yes, the United States ought to do everything it needs to do to protect its citizens from terror. Did I answer your question? 
If I could just add, uh, in fact, more than 99% of the DACA recipients have not lost their status as a result of any kind of criminal offense after the, they received it. So um, very law-abiding population uh, that have received DACA. Oh, think about it. I mean, the DACA population has a hell of an, has a hell of an incentive not to commit a crime. Let's uh, go right in the front row here. <laughs> Bill Bushka from doasdotel.com. Um, first, a very simple question. Can you make contributions to your um, charity from a trust with an automated, an automated bank mechanism? <laughs> That's what I like to do with some of my other charities. So, so at least part of the... Part of the donations are basically impersonal and automated. Can one do that with yes, with estates and trusts? This is very helpful if you can. Yes, Thank okay. you for asking the question, but is it allowed? It me to say yes, this is a 501c3 and it's tax deductible, but yes, we accept automated contributions. And then the, the other thing is more nebulous because, because the political status of what's going to happen in Congress is uncertain because of the uncertainty that many people in the DACA situation would feel. Are we headed toward a situation where you would be asking individual people to support individual people in DACA status or house them or do something that was, has been, been done with asylum seekers um, like in the LGBT community and so forth? Would you be heading toward that kind of a situation? Now, I know Dave has written about you know, sponsorship in Canada and we don't have it in the United States and it's a very complicated subject as to what individual people ought to do or if they're contemplating doing it, because it's not very clear what they would be getting into if they tried to do it. It's a very complicated subject, sponsorship. All right, thank, does that, thank you. Does thank that you. apply to yeah. this in somehow, or could it apply to this? Generous question. One thing that anybody in the audience can do, uh, a lot of the students at Trinity are like Sedona, they come from other states and they're living on the Trinity campus, and they don't know anybody in Washington, D.C. So as a first step, uh, anybody might get in touch with us or get in touch with one of these students and invite one or two of the students from out of town over to dinner and let them meet a friend or two of yours. And you know, a lot of them want to study for help. What, what, what are the principal majors? What are most of the dreamers studying, Sedan and Marzella? So a lot of them study education and nursing. And particularly for nursing and for some studying criminal justice, it's really difficult for them to have mentors in the field, undocumented mentors and, and people who sort of are able to guide them throughout the process because we're all first, we're all first generation college graduates at this point and, and college students. And so we sort of need, like Don said, uh, we need you know, an introduction over dinner or something for someone to sort of guide us to the right internships or or the right sort of mentor programs or things like that. Or just talk. That's a lovely question. Uh, why don't we go back to the uh, one in the first row right here. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Janice Walt Grenadier. Um, first of all, you didn't make this choice, and these children shouldn't be punished for choices they didn't make, and they have excelled. Um, but do you think maybe the mistake was that you, everyone has tried to think this was a 
um, democratic solution and not a Republican solution and put too much into just one party instead of looking at it as an American solution and you should be looking at Republicans who will support you as well. I, I mean, I'm a Republican, I support DACA and I think we've been overlooked as supporters and that we don't feel, you know, as children you were, you, you didn't make this choice and so you shouldn't have to pay for it. So DACA's a good situation and especially since you are vetted, um, but th maybe you should look more at the Republicans. Uh, the answer to your question is yes, 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 yes. When we announced the Dream.us, some uh, people across the across uh, both parties endorsed, uh, wrote, uh, signed their names uh, endorsing it. Uh, Newt Gingrich did, Jeb Bush did, Grover Norquist did, and Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox, did. So that's four uh, pretty Republican people right there. And uh, yes, there are... Uh, wonderful uh, Republican proponents of DACA in both houses and around the country, and I'm glad that includes you. Thank you. Excellent. And uh, right here on the on the aisle. Hi, um, I'm Rachel. My name is Rachel. Um, I wanted to address the problem of um, what is called illegal immigration because it seems to me like the line between legal and non-legal immigration is pretty pretty thin. Um, I, I just wanted to, uh, I was curious about it, like can you become an undocumented immigrant like accidentally? Well, so Maricela didn't exactly volunteer at the age of five. <laughs> I because um I know I know this is about DACA, but I also um I wanted to address like um people who are here und undocumented like immigrants. Like I because I know a lot of times that um some someone will come with documents and then those documents expire and then all of a sudden they're undocumented, so I just, I just. Gabby, Gabby Pacheco, why don't you answer that if you give her the mic? Gabby spent uh, more time in immigration advocacy and understanding immigration than I have by far. I am not an attorney, by the way, um, but I have a lot of experience um, of that. And the short answer to your question is yes, right? So. Um, unfortunately, our immigration system is so convoluted. It's so difficult. And reality is that, for example, with my family, um, when we came to the U.S., we came with a visa. My parents knew that they wanted to stay here. They hired an attorney. They started a process. And unfortunately, it wasn't that even the attorney, but the person that put together the packet that when they submitted all our paperwork to immigration, left one document out, and that was it, right? So immigration usually gives you 33 days um, when, they, when you're missing something, and if you don't know about that, you're done. There's no appeal process, there's nothing you can do. So my family, after spending a lot of money, a lot of time trying to uh, get in line, right, get some sort of process they weren't able to. But today, if Maricela and Serana and the 
close to 700,000 people who want to, and all the immigrants that are here, who want to get some sort of status, cannot go to an office like we do if you're a citizen to get a password, do you go to the US Postal Service? They cannot go to the Department of Homeland Security and say, I am here, I wanna start a process. Um, uh, I had the opportunity in 2013 to meet with Donald Trump and I was explaining this to him and he said, well, can I get one of my attorneys to help you out? And I said, Donald Trump, if I wanted to, I would love that, but even if I wanted, even if I had the best attorney in the country, there's nothing I can do, right? So unfortunately, I think for, to answer your question is yes, and that our immigration system just doesn't have the means, doesn't have the ways for people like Maricela Serana um, to be able to get themselves, their, their legal status. Could become... What Gabby just said is very important. There is no process by which Maricela or Sedona or any of our DACA recipients can become a citizen. If they could, they would. There's no line that they can get in. There's no fee that they can pay. There's no program they can apply to. They cannot do it. Yeah, these questions have been so friendly. We would also welcome <laughs> more critical comments if anybody has some. There's, a, there's someone in the back who's had her hand up all along. His hand up. We can't see you. That's why you weren't called on. Probably should stand something. I'm pretty tall, but you know, guys, I'll never. I could never qualify for DACA. I mean, given my record, I probably would fail like my my first year or something. Um, I was recently at a, at an event at another think tank here, and the conversation was about DACA and like uh, immigration is an issue across the world right now. And the comment was made that the whole world cannot live in North America and Europe. Like there's just not enough space. And given our economics right now, I mean, is this the country where, is this the country still where you could come in and kind of work from the bottom, work at a factory, second generation goes to college and third generation becomes wealthy at some point. I mean, are we there? Are we very urbanized? We're very technical? That's a great question. Um, Why don't we let them answer? Do you think it's, that's the country that we are today? Do you think you can make it if you got the chance? Absolutely. I've accomplished so much in the past four years than I ever did in the past 10 years that I was without DACA. So I can only imagine that if I was truly free, and if the other 11 million immigrants in America right now were truly free to be productive, to be able to drive cars, to be able to get insurance, to be able to be employed, to be able to take part in the economy, to be able to be teachers and nurses and whatever other dreams they want to pursue, I feel like America could still be that place and probably be even better because right now those people are suppressed and they're not able to fully, as I was, not able to fully participate. Um, my parents, who came with me to the U.S., are still completely undocumented, and they work at gas stations and have still not been able to progress from that point, such as I have and the other immigrants in that situation. So I feel like a lot of potential is being suppressed mm -hmm. from the immigrants who are physically here. And I don't believe that anyone's giving up on the American dream. They're just still waiting, and they're still hoping that someday they'll get their chance, too. one thing, waving my arms once again to say, I am not an immigration expert. That's an immigration expert. David, Alex, 
uh, and I don't, uh, uh, I haven't done research on the subject, there is a short book I would recommend to any of you who are interested in the subject of immigration in the United States by this fellow at Harvard, Roberto Gonzalez, whom I referenced earlier. It is called Lives in Limbo. It is a study of undocumented kids living in Los Angeles before DACA. Uh, uh, Roberto uh, got these young people to agree to cooperate with him. They gave him access to their lives. Uh, they, uh, without DACA, half of them wanted to go to college, half did not. It didn't matter. Everyone, even those who went to college and did well, wound up in the jobs of their parents, working in gas stations, doing dangerous construction work, cleaning hotel rooms. Why? Because an employer cannot legally hire an undocumented immigrant. So we have 11 million people in this country whom an employer cannot legally hire, okay? And Roberto's book is uh, stunning to me uh, in what it tells about the lives of this population who are the ultimate subjects of the immigration debate. What are we gonna do about it? And uh, if DACA goes away, exactly as Sadana and Maricela each said, the job opportunities open to them narrow down to the jobs of their parents because they cannot work for the Montgomery County School System or any other employer. And, you know, I, I, don't, I'm, I, don't, I don't write laws. I don't understand laws. This is crazy. Yeah. I used to be in law enforcement. I've arrested felons and sent them to jail. If she did something, quote, wrong, being carried across the border, she was five years old. There is nothing for which you'd arrest. There's no offense for which a policeman would arrest a five-year-old. You'd be laughed out of court. And it happened at least 11 years ago, because to get DACA, you have to have come to the United States before 2007. If I pulled a gun and robbed you in Washington in 2007, the statute of limitations is expired. Well, thank you, all three of you. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories. Thank you.